turn you to 1 Kings and chapter 4, which is on page 304 of the Church Bible. 1 Kings and chapter 4. I want to read from verse 20 to 25. Although we will be ranging over the entire chapter, this is the heart, lies at the heart of what we wish to consider this evening. Verse 20. 1 Kings chapter 4, let's hear again the word of God. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day was thirty cores of fine flour, sixty cores of meal, ten fatted oxen, twenty oxen from the pastures, and one hundred sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Titsar even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side, all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. As we have opened up these early chapters of 1 Kings, we concluded last Lord's Day evening, with 1 Kings chapter 4, seeing that it was God who made Solomon great. The earlier chapters show us how God established Solomon. Solomon was God's chosen king to replace David. God gave Solomon wisdom to rule, and besides wisdom, he also bestowed upon him riches and honour which he had not asked for, but God in his kindness bestowed riches and honour also on him. And the effect was that Solomon was great in the eyes of Israel, all Israel recognised him, and he was great in the eyes of all the nations and all the kings of the surrounding nations. As you look at this chapter, in the context of what follows and what preceded under the judges, under Saul, under David even, you begin to realise that the reign of Solomon is unique. It is unparalleled. There is no one like Solomon before, there is no one like Solomon after his reign. That is what God said of Solomon in chapter 3. That is not something that is just a fact, it is something that God promised. He promised Solomon, your reign will excel, you will be great, and your kingdom and what you enjoy as king in your kingdom is something which is unparalleled in the history of Israel. Now the fact that it did not last should not blind us though to the fact 
that this was real. Solomon reigned over Israel for some 40 years and it was only in his old age that he departed from following the Lord with a loyal heart. And so for the best part of a generation, for nearly 40 years, this situation prevailed in Israel. And Solomon has not yet reached his crowning glory. He has not yet built the temple. That is something that we come to in 1 Kings chapter 5. And we must remember, in the same way as we do not judge David's reign by his one horrible fall into sin, we should not judge Solomon's reign by his final departure at the end of his reign. His fall is covered in one chapter. The glory of Solomon is covered in the first ten chapters. So we need to keep a sense of balance and perspective. What I want to look at this evening is this period of unparalleled divine blessing that reaches this pinnacle in the Old Testament in the days of Solomon. And I want to look with you at two things. First of all, we want to consider the source of this blessing. And then secondly, the signs or the evidence of that blessing. First of all then, let us consider in a little more detail the source of this blessing. This unparalleled divine blessing. Well, you say, of course, it is God who is the source of this blessing. In the same way that God made Solomon great, that God is the source of Solomon's greatness, so God is the source of all the blessings that Solomon and Israel enjoyed for a whole generation. And you are meant to read this chapter 4 and gaze in wonder at God's ways and God's blessing. You are meant to be impressed. You are meant to come away with a sense of how great is God? How powerful and mighty is God? How good is God to Israel? How faithful is he to Solomon and to the people of God? Now on what basis do I say that? This unparalleled period of blessing from God's hand is nothing less than the fulfilment of God's promises. And some of those promises are long-standing promises. We spoke last week of the things, Solomon's phrase, the things that God has spoken with his mouth and fulfilled with his hand. And that can, be, that can serve as a useful way of remembering these things. Well, what has God spoken? And what is he fulfilling now with his hand in the days of Solomon? You see, 1 Kings 4 has echoes of promises made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, which was nearly a thousand years, 900 years probably ago, before Solomon. Then Moses 
480 years, and Joshua, 440 years, and then more recent promises to Solomon's father, David. These are promises that have come to a measure of fulfilment in the days of Solomon. So the blessing that Israel enjoys is a consequence of God's own promises. There are echoes of those promises. Look at the first of them in verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude. Now that's not a very accurate census. It's not intended to be. Why? Because it is an echo of the promise that God gave to Abraham first of all and then reiterated to Isaac and to Jacob. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 17, it is quite clear that the writer in 1 Kings is drawing attention to it, saying here is an echo of the promise. This is a promise that God gave to Abraham. It's being fulfilled in the days of Solomon. 22 and verse 17 God says, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the sea shore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. The very fact that Israel is now a great nation and described as more numerous or numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude is itself a blessing. It all started out with one man and his family, Abraham. They are now a great nation. And that is a fulfilment of God's promise. That's part of the blessing. But then, look again. Verse 21 and verse 24. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river, that is the river to the northeast, the Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt, almost from the Euphrates down to the river Nile. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. And verse 24, he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tipsar even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river. He had peace on every side, all around him. Now again, there are echoes of the promise that God gave to Abraham. Genesis 15 and verse 18. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying... To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then there are the list of the nations whom Israel was to subdue and to drive out of the land. But that promise is also confirmed to Moses in Exodus and chapter 23 and verse 31. And I will set your bounds from the Red Sea to the sea Philistia and from the desert to the river for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you and if that was not enough it's reiterated again to Moses' successor to Joshua in chapter 1 and verse 4 
Verse 3 says, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. And these are echoed, aren't they here? I'm not making this up, it is there. This is the blessing of God. God is the one who has brought things to a head in the reign of Solomon. And then in verse 25 of 1 Kings 4, we have that phrase at the, sorry, verse 24, at the end of that verse, he had peace on every side all around him. That was something that God had promised to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 10, God said, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Remember what it was like under the days of the judges. David himself had to go to war in order to obtain and make peace. He was the man of war, but Solomon was the man of peace. And he enjoyed the peace that God promised to David that he would enjoy, Solomon would enjoy. Solomon was living then and ruling after David. He was, as it were, standing on David's shoulders and enjoying the benefits of David's triumph over the nations. And so the nation had peace on every side, all around them. The nation then had grown so much so that it was as numerous as the sand on the seashore. And it enjoyed internal peace. It enjoyed external peace. This was in fulfilment of the promises that God had given. And the scope of his kingdom is at its greatest extent at any point in any of the reign of the kings of Israel. But it is all in accordance with the word of God. What God has spoken by his mouth, he has fulfilled by his hand, by his power. This is not then a description of some human-made utopia. This is not some literary device pretending that everything is well in the world when it isn't. This is something that happened. Solomon's reign is real history. It really happened. Why? Because it is based on real promises of the God who is the living and true God, who had spoken to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, David, and made those clear promises. And now they were coming to fulfilment in the days of Solomon. What you have here then, is for a short period, a whole generation, is the blessings that God bestows upon his people for their obedience. If you turned back, we haven't time to do that this evening, to Deuteronomy 28. There Moses describes the blessings that come upon a people who obey their covenant Lord. When you look through that Deuteronomy 28, there is only peace 
There is only prosperity. There is only blessing. And I would go so far as to say that in 1 Kings 4, there is no hint whatsoever of any of the curses of the covenant which come as a consequence of disobedience. They followed the reign of Solomon. They began in the reign of Solomon, the end of his reign, and they continued. And the greatest curse of all was when they were driven out of the land in exile because of their disobedience, because they had followed the gods of the nations. But at this point, there is obedience. At this point, there is blessing. At this point, there is the fulfillment of God's promises. And King 1 Kings 4 then is strategic. The author, inspired by the Spirit of God, is telling his informed readers that God's previous promises to the fathers have been fulfilled. God's blessings that he spoke of in Deuteronomy 28 are not some pipe dream. They are real. They may be rare in the sense that the people of God do not often disobey. But at this point, they are real and they are being fulfilled. This is an unparalleled time of blessing upon the nation of Israel. Those promises are being fulfilled. The blessing of God is being enjoyed in Solomon's reign. God is the author. God is the source. The same God who revealed himself to Abraham nearly a thousand years before. Now, having said all that, this is not the final fulfilment of those promises that we've just described. It is partial. It is interim. It is something that is not permanent. Until the one who is greater than Solomon arises, the Lord Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, to sit on the throne of David, these promises are not finally fulfilled. But that does not take away the reality of those promises and the reality of this blessing and the fact that this is a unique period in Israel's history. I say again, you and I as we read this are meant to be impressed by this display of God's power and his goodness and his faithfulness. We are meant to say, how great is this God? How good is this God? How reliable is this God? What blessings this God bestows upon his people. We have to lift up our eyes beyond our own lifespan. Our lifespan is but a few years, but a hand's breadth compared with the eternal God. What we see here are almost a thousand years of the working of the eternal God as he fulfills his plans and his purposes for his people. And this is only a part of what he is going to do. This is not the greatest part of what he is going to do when he sends his son Jesus Christ into the world. But nevertheless, it is a real and a significant time, an unparalleled time of divine blessing. Here is his powerful word spoken from his lips. Here is his powerful arm, his hand fulfilling his promises. 
Here are the words and the works of a sovereign God. Working not because of David, not because of Solomon, for they are but men and they are sinful men. But here is the wonder of it. God is using these men despite their sinfulness to display his greatness and his glory and his goodness and his faithfulness. Why? For the very same reason that God said to Moses, I've not chosen you because you are more in number. I've not chosen you because you are better than the nations. I've chosen you because I love you. Ultimately, this is an expression of God's love for his people. God's love for David. God's love for Solomon. God's grace to David. What are the amazing things that the man who sits on the throne of David after David is Solomon. And Solomon is the fruit of David and Bathsheba. That strike you as amazing? David had sinned and yet God set his love upon David and God set his love upon Solomon. And Solomon was the king. It wasn't because of anything in Solomon. It certainly wasn't because of anything in David or Bathsheba. This is God in his grace. That's the way he always works. How has he worked in your life? Is it because of something that is in you? Something native to you? Are you better than anybody else? We're certainly not more numerous than other people. We are a small church. No, it's because of God's love. It's because God in his sovereignty set his love upon us. It's a love that comes to full expression in the giving of his Son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation from sin and from death. The giving of eternal life. The giving of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. It's all of grace. It's all his power. It's all his goodness. It's all his faithfulness. How great then is God. He is the source of this unparalleled time of blessing. Well, if we've seen the source, what was it like to live under this blessing? What was life like in the kingdom of Solomon? What was it like to live under this God and under this wise king whom God had appointed? Let's look secondly then at the signs, the evidences of this blessing. And we'll look at them in turn. There are three of them. There is order, there is joy, and there is security that comes from living under God's blessing. Three signs, three evidences. First of all, there is the order that comes from living under God's blessing. That is what chapter 4 and the first 20 verses are all about. All that list of names. That's why it's here in the scriptures. That's why we hear about Azariah the priest, Beniah, the army commander, Zabud, who was a priest and the king's friend and counsellor. Ben-Hur, the first of those twelve district governors mentioned there in verse 8. Those men, those governors, those officials who provided food for the king. And in fact all the king's horses and all the king's men, if I may use a nursery rhyme. Because that's what they were doing. You read about the horses and the stables and the food that was provided 
Every month, one of these 12 men in one of these districts was to supply all that was needed for the king's household. Why are those things there? Why are all these men mentioned? Why is this administration mentioned? All his cabinet officials, if you like, all his governing men, and then all this organization and administration for the feeding of the people and the feeding of brother Solomon and his kingdom? Well, because God's kingdom is a kingdom in which there is order. God's gift of wisdom and the rule of a wise king extends to the ordinary affairs of daily life and to the ordering of the affairs of daily life. The life of men, the life of women, the life of families, the life of nations. Here is a king and here is the evidence of the divine blessing. Here is a king who is gifted and recognised government order, cabinet officials, a king with district officials responsible for feeding the people. They are a great multitude. And his kingdom and his administration and his palace and his horses, they needed to be sustained. It's not just going to happen by chance. It is organised. It is all ordered. There's order, there is efficiency, there is authority, there is leadership. Everyone has their place. There is no mention here of jealousy and envy and strife. There is no rebellious Adonijah to destroy the peace of the kingdom. There is no bloodthirsty avenging Joab who's going to be someone you always have to keep your eye on because you never know what he's going to do next. There is no cursing Shimei in this place where there is only blessing. Their sinful patterns of life would have disturbed the order and the peace of the kingdom. They would have destroyed the blessing. They've been removed from the scene. It is sin that brings disorder. It is sin that brings disarray. It is sin that tends to anarchy and to chaos and things getting out of control and men and women's lives then endangered. When England was plunged into civil war in the 1640s, Charles I tried to impose his authority as king. He said that he was above the law and maintained that basically to the end of his life. He was the law and no one could contradict him. And he was prosecuted for acting as a tyrant largely responsible for the bloodshed of the civil war. The disorder and the disarray of the war that followed when over a hundred thousand men died and many were maimed and injured for the rest of their life. That is not the picture here, is it? This is a picture of peace, of order, of structure, of authority. And everything is working. All the cogs in the machine are working properly. They are well oiled. Let me try and apply this. There are some Christians who hate administration, who hate organisation. They feel it's too mundane. It's not very spiritual. It's not worthy then of our time and our energy and our attention. 
I know of some churches where that is the case. I know of some schools. I once worked in one for a little while where it was really wasn't quite anarchy. It wasn't chaos. But it wasn't well ordered and structured. Do you like bureaucratic inefficiency? You get plenty of it. You don't like it. Does corruption bother you in our government? Are you appalled over the waste of monies and funds, your taxes, because things have not been running properly? One of the first things that the now Home Secretary said regarding the Home Office, it was not fit for purpose. It wasn't running properly. You say, well, why not? Aren't these people in power and authority there? And you get frustrated. You think, well, why? Why on earth is it like this? Have you ever worked somewhere where there are no clear lines of authority? Who's responsible for decisions and actions? Who's responsible for the financial decisions and financial actions? You don't know whether you're coming or going. The Word of God tells us that order, structure, authority, leadership, efficiency, organisation is not something mundane and something to be pushed to one side. God is a God of order. This is not repression. This is not tyranny. This is not authoritarianism. Solomon is not overreaching himself. This order is a sign one of the signs of God's blessing upon this nation. Mark it well because it is not going to be the case in any other reign after Solomon. And we will see it as we work our way through 1 and 2 Kings. The shambles that often reigned in the nations of Israel and Judah. Now, if God is a God of order, that order ought to be seen in your lives and my life. It ought to be seen in our homes. If you are the head of your household, husband, father, you ought to be exercising loving leadership over your wife and your children. Your wife ought to be concerned with the smooth running of the home, the provision of food, the provision of clothing. That takes organisation. It means you have to budget. It means you have to spend wisely. That's administration, isn't it? That's organisation. That's maintaining order in the home. There ought to be order in our lives. And if you are single, you have to do the same thing. Whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. You have to get a hold of things and make sure things are running as smoothly as you possibly can. You have to take responsibility for your finances. You have to take responsibility for what goes on in your four walls. God is a God of order. If you have responsibility at work for making decisions, let it be seen that as a Christian man, as a Christian woman, you are a man or woman who is orderly, organized, punctual, dependable. Reflect the God who is a God of order. And in the Church of Christ, there is order and organization. 
Again, people say, oh no, we, we don't want any order, we don't want any elders, we don't want anybody to rule, we don't want deacons, we can all do this together, we don't need any structure. God hasn't left it that way. Christ has given order and organisation. Paul writes to the Philippians, and he begins his letter, as he writes, he writes to the saints in Christ Jesus, in Philippi, with the elders, with the overseers and the deacons. Christ is the head of his church. He has made the saints kings and priests to rule and to serve him. And he has also given elders to rule as under-shepherds. And he has given deacons in order to serve. Both reflecting the rule of Christ. There is order. There is organisation. That is why things are explained to you as a church. It's why we have church meetings. It's why we present a budget. It's why we present accounts. What would it say to the tax authorities if we did not present accurate, kept accounts of our expenditure? And we say, oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the tax man thinks. It doesn't matter what the authorities think. Well, how would that reflect upon our God? What would their conclusion would they draw about the God whom we serve? And we live in a day where many dislike order, structure, authority. Dysfunction was a word that is often used of families where that order and that love and that structure is broken down. But here is a graciously imposed order and structure and it ought to be reflected in every single man and woman who names the name of Christ. That's part of the divine blessing that is evident in the kingdom of Solomon. A second sign is the joy that comes from living under God's blessing. The joy that comes. I say, well that's really more spiritual. No, don't, don't think that way. The order is part of it and the joy is part of it. Notice verse 20. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. Eating, drinking and rejoicing. There were no signs of famine, no signs of poverty, no sad sights of swollen bellies, of young children that had not had food and drink. You turn back to Deuteronomy 28, and in those opening verses where the blessing of God is described, God says he will bless the produce of the ground, he will increase their herds, their cattle, their flocks, their baskets, and their kneading bowls will be blessed, their storehouses will be full. This is the blessing of God that comes upon a people who are seeking to live before God and are seeking to obey God. There is no hunger. There is no thirst. And we don't find that repeated again until Revelation chapter 7 where the Lamb leads to the living fountains of waters. Every tear has been wiped away. No hunger. No thirst. Now I'm telling you, indicating that some of these blessings you see will only be fulfilled finally in the coming of Christ and his kingdom. 
But at this particular point, there is no hunger and there is no thirst. There is eating, there is drinking, and there is joy. A joy that is centered upon God because of God's faithfulness. He has been at work. Here are the evidences of his super abundant blessing and promises. The nation is full of joy. Gladness grips their heart. Rejoicing in the goodness and faithfulness of God. They are content. They are happy. They are full of jubilation and gladness of heart. Do the promises of God do the blessings that God bestows upon you as an individual, upon you and your family, upon you and the church, do those blessings and those promises have such a hold on your mind and your affections that they produce this deep-seated rejoicing in God? Do desire and long for His blessing, His presence, his rule. Is your joy set upon God? Set in God? Embedded in His faithfulness and His sovereign goodness and love? Paul can write in Ephesians 1 and verse 3 and following, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then with one long, long sentence that goes on right to verse 14, he itemizes some of those spiritual blessings in Christ. And he is blessing God. He is full of joy. He is full of gladness. And he wants the church to be engaged in giving praise to God. It's a doxology. It's a song of praise. A joyful song of praise. Israel is eating, drinking and rejoicing. Rejoicing in God. They have eyes to see. The blessing of God is upon them. They have eyes to see the promises of God have been fulfilled that they are receiving all these good things from God and they are unashamedly enjoying them and giving thanks to Him. What a contrast to the lives that some of us once lived. Remember how Paul put it in Titus chapter 3? Our lives, he said, at one point were full and set upon fulfilling our own sinful desires, serving various lusts and pleasures, malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. This is always the kinds of things that characterize some of us. What a contrast. The blessing of God. Eating, drinking, and rejoicing. Some of you sitting here this evening enjoy the spin-off of some of those blessings. When God's people meet together as a church and God is pleased to bless them and God is pleased to come and presence himself among them and begin to show them something of his goodness and kindness, and it has a total transforming effect upon their lives, then those who come in among and may not 
profess to name the name of Christ, they may not be converted to Christ, you enjoy something of the blessing of God. It's, spin, it's a spin-off. It's the effect. You enjoy friendship. You go into people's homes and eat a meal. You have a full stomach. If you're ill, someone will come and see you and visit you and seek to encourage you and care for you. These are some of the effects of the blessing of God. But simply being here can be a blessing, but, but, simply being here and enjoying the kindness that comes as a result of God's people being kind to you because God has been kind to them is not the same as enjoying the forgiveness of sins. It is not to have the first hand experience of the blessing of God and the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. If there were older children here, I would be saying the same thing. You can enjoy, and you do enjoy, our children enjoy the blessing of God, but it is not the same as enjoying the blessing of salvation. What a tragedy if you enjoy all those blessings, and yet you miss out on the chief blessing of all, the forgiveness of sins that comes through the washing of the blood by the blood of Jesus Christ and you yourself can enter into and you yourself can take delight then in God and call him your God, my God my God, my Saviour my Lord, my Redeemer the tragedy is you would lose all those things hell is a place where there is no blessing of God it is all curse. It is all judgment. A place of terror. And unless you are trusting in Christ, that will be your eternal portion. But there is a third sign, a third evidence. We've looked at the order, we've looked at the joy that comes from living under God's blessing. There is the security that comes from living under God's blessing. Verses 21 and 24 again, Solomon's dominion and reign, and then verse 24, summarizing it, peace on every side, all around him. He had peace on every side. And in verse 25, Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. From Dan in the north, as far as Beersheba in the far south, all the days of Solomon. When God spoke to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he promised them a land that was flowing with milk and honey. I've set your salivary glands going, maybe you're not fond of milk and honey but it was intended to set your salivary glands going. And here is another picture. Every man under his vine and his fig tree. The vine and the fig tree are often brought together in tandem in Scripture. They are symbolic of peace and prosperity 
of shalom, of well-being, of peace. The well-being of God's people under the divine blessing. All the land from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Here is a man, imagine a man, here he is. He's been working hard, he is a farmer. Here are his vines, here are his fig trees. And he sits under his tree at noonday to take shelter from the noonday heat. Sit in the shade. And he reflects upon the blessing of God. And the peace that he enjoys. And the prosperity that he and his neighbours in the kingdom enjoys. Contrast that with what had happened a few hundred years before David and Solomon. Where was Gideon? Remember Gideon? Judges 6 and 11. Threshing wheat in a wine press to hide from the marauding Midianites. What a contrast. Imagine what it must have been like to live in Israel under Solomon. A sense of peace, a sense of safety, a sense of security. They enjoyed the prosperity and the blessing of God. They were under God's wise king. They were living in days of fulfilled promises. They were living under this divine blessing. They were free from fear. They were free from oppression. They were free from hunger and thirst. There was never a time like it before and never a time like it afterwards. It is 70 years since Britain was threatened by the invasion of Hitler. You remember, Hitler came and bombed London and bombed our cities. No one was safe. Thousands were evacuated. My mother and my older sister were evacuated out of London. Thousands were killed. We still have the threat of terrorism. I recall some years ago being caught up in London with my wife and my family when the IRA were bombing London. and There was a bomb scare and everything was paralysed. I felt a sense of responsibility. How do I, I, need, I need to take care of my wife and my family. We need to get out of this place. We need to get home. We need to get away from any potential danger. We are familiar with 9-11. We are familiar with 7-7. It wasn't like that in Solomon's day. There was no threat. There was peace on every side. Internal peace. External peace. Because of the fulfilled promises of God and the blessing of God upon this nation. Now what is the point of all of this? There are three things I want to conclude with this evening. First of all, as we look at 1 Kings chapter 4, what we have here is a sure foundation for our faith. Why do I say that? Because the prophets who came after Solomon, men like Isaiah, men like Micah, the prophets looked forward to the day of the Lord when what was enjoyed in Solomon's day would be true again, but it would be true in perfection and in permanence. 
The promises made by God were only fulfilled in part, only for a time in Solomon's reign. We are talking about the security and the peace and the prosperity of the kingdom of God as it comes to fulfilment in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not talking about an earthly security. We're talking about that security that Peter spoke about in the words that we read right at the very beginning of our service. We're talking about that inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What you have here in 1 Kings 4 is a kind of picture of that final salvation that will come in all its perfection and in all its permanence when the reign of Jesus Christ is fulfilled. Don't we read in Revelation 9 of the numberless throng that no man, the great multitude, that no man could number, chosen, redeemed, called the true descendants of Abraham. It belongs to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Christ who was crucified in our place on Calvary's cross. Christ who secured that inheritance for us. Christ who is our righteousness. Christ who is our sanctification. Christ who is our glorification. The blessings of God's salvation are not simply this life. Eating, drinking and rejoicing. Blessings though they are. This is something far greater. The blessings of God's salvation. Paul would say, who is going to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord? Think of the words of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. He said, I give you eternal life and no one can pluck you from my hand. No one can pluck you from my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now we are shaken at times. We do not always enjoy order and joy and peace and security. The church is often persecuted. I don't think we've had an opportunity to tell you about what has happened in Sri Lanka. Pastor Bala sent a letter to us last week. You know that there is a war going on in Sri Lanka between the Tamil Tigers and the government forces. One of the churches has uprooted and gone to India, to Madurai, in order to live. Another church has moved to another part of Sri Lanka in order to try and escape the war. But on the way, someone was shot at and killed. You say, well, where is the peace and security of the kingdom of God? Has anything of the love of God changed? Has anything of the power of God, the promises of God changed? Didn't our Lord Jesus Christ said, don't fear those who kill the body. This is not an earthly salvation. This is not just for this life. This is an eternal inheritance. And we have a sure foundation 
in the promises of God and the anticipated blessings that God will yet bestow. And if that is the case, then secondly, there should be an increased longing for this salvation. Solomon's kingdom did not last. The blessings that God bestowed upon him were interim blessings. They were real, but they were not the final fulfilled blessings. They were a foretaste. This is the old Jerusalem. There is a new Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is from above. This is a foretaste. This is an idea of what it will be like. A place where there is order. A place where there is joy. A place where there is peace and security and blessing and prosperity. Not just the absence of death. Not just the absence of sorrow and pain and crying. But the tabernacle of God is with men. He shall dwell with them and they shall be his people and he will be their God. That is the ultimate blessing and the enjoyment of that blessing. That is what the people of God, that is what you and I are called upon to increasingly anticipate. This is the God who will one day bring about that new Jerusalem. And if that is the case, not only do we have a sure foundation, not only is this something then to increasingly anticipate, but also what we read in this chapter ought to be a spur to us to prepare for that day. To prompt our worship here and now as we see and we anticipate an even greater display of the greatness and goodness and power and faithfulness of our God. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 about the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And he goes on to say, what kind of people then ought we to be in the light of this? We ought to be holy. We ought to be godly as we wait for that day. We ought to be purifying ourselves, separating ourselves from this world. This is not something which is just some idealistic hope. This is not some vague utopian dream. These are the promises of the eternal God that he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Joshua, to David, to Solomon. He is the God and Father, the same God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through him, through him, we have eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the foundation of the world and is now manifested through the preaching of the gospel. What you are hearing in the preaching of the gospel are these promises of eternal life. What you are hearing in 1 Kings chapter 4 are the blessings ultimately of eternal life. This is but the earthly prefigurement of those eternal blessings that come to us in Christ. That is why when we read through the book of Revelation there are constant songs of praise to the Lamb who was slain. Constant songs of praise to God. God must have the glory. And God will have the glory. Because we know it is not of us. It can never be of us. This is God taking the initiative. 
This is God making the promises. This is God speaking with his mouth. This is God working by his omnipotent power to fulfill his word. And he will do it in his Son, Jesus Christ. In a moment we will come and eat and drink together in remembrance of Christ's death. Because that death is the death that has secured all these blessings for us. We will come then with thankfulness and with joy and humility and faith to enjoy those blessings and to anticipate the full enjoyment of those blessings. Amen.